Utah, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the land of Mormon. I'm Barrett Golding, and that's where we're going this hour. Hearing voices from NPR is taking you out on the Mormon fringe. Polygamists, Hawaiians, and Native Americans. See, the Mormons believed Indians were the descendants of the ancient house of Israel. And so it's a Mormon mission to bring the Indian back into the kingdom of God. So they took children from their reservation homes and brought them to a Utah school. 20,000 of them ran through the Indian Student Placement Program. For a year, Kate Davidson talked to people who were in the placement program. She made a story for the Worlds of Difference series from Homeland Productions in 2005. She calls it Saints and Indians. To this day, August is the month I dread the most because that was the month that I always left to go on placement. Somehow it was always raining when we got on the bus. There was floods. So every year I always associate those rainy August days with having to leave home again. This is a true story about an educational program that annually sends several hundred Mormon Indian children from the reservations of Arizona and New Mexico to temporary foster homes in Utah where the children spend the school year as members of non-Indian Mormon families. My name is Rose Danetsosi, and I was 11 years old when I went on the placement program. My dad would tell us that the traditional way of life was going to eventually phase out. He says, I want you sitting in nice offices where it's air-conditioned and the summer and warm in the winter and and be receiving a paycheck for it. And we always left at night being the oldest boy in my family I always tried to put on a brave face and I swore I would never cry. That never happened. I I cried every time when I got in my seat, and uh, thankfully all the lights were off, so I just sat there. And then we rode the bus all night. When I woke up, we were on the freeways, and I just remember seeing all these bridges that crossed over, under, and... Seeing it, it was like, how do people know which way they're going? How can you tell? And I felt like I was entering another world where people seemed to be hurrying everywhere. Arrival at the Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, marks the end of the first stage of their journey. And so in an area where just a hundred years ago, the cry, the Indians are coming, sent fear into the hearts of the settlers. Now the same cry brings joyful anticipation to families and homes throughout Utah. I'm Sharon Muirbrook. Our family settled here in North Ogden and settled along the Wasatch Front uh, when the pioneers came to Utah. And so we've always just had love for the, for the Indians. My name is Dory Peters. I'm from originally from Red Valley, Arizona. They called my name. And I said, oh, no. My my foster mother came up and gave me a hug and blonde hair, you know, brown eyes. And their kids were just blonde hair. They were the whitest kids I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I was assigned the topic this morning concerning the Lamanites. The Lord has, through his prophets, predicted their destiny, that they would fall and that they would then be recovered. They used to tell us that we were a chosen race. They used to call us the Lamanites. But because we didn't listen to God, we were cursed and 
we, we came out with dark skins and black hair. Let me quote two or three scriptures in preface. Behold, these shall dwindle in unbelief. And it came to pass that I beheld that after they had dwindled in unbelief, they became a dark, loathsome, and a filthy people, full of idleness and all manner of abominations. Again, my name is Clarence R. Bishop. I was director of the Indian Placement Program. You've heard about our Book of Mormon. Our Book of Mormon talks about the day of the Lamanite, when the church would make a special effort to build and reclaim a fallen people. And some people will say, well, fallen from what? I mean, they aren't fallen. They have their own culture. They have their own this. They have their own that. But according to the Book of Mormon, they originally had the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would tell us, now it's your job to go home and to teach your family about the church and to help them understand it so they can... They didn't say so they can be saved so that they can blossom like the rose, too. My name is Laura Brown. I came from a family of one older brother, six younger, and one younger sister. And I remember herding sheep and herding cattle for my grandmother. And I remember a lot of drinking on my dad's part and physical abuse because of that. Later on, my mother told us that when she heard of the placement program, she saw a way out for her children. My husband is he's drinking a lot. He didn't think about those kids. I do. I wanted to raise good. That's why. Growing up, we would always watch white people from a distance. And I always was kind of curious and see how do they live. Do they live like us? Now, obviously, they don't, <laughs> which I found out. The first thing I noticed was the smell. Everything smelled different. I mean, I miss the the cedar of the reservation, the sage and the rain and the the smell of my grandfather doing his ceremonies and so forth. And in the white man's world, it was everything was, it smelled like plastic. It smelled like uh, metal. I was amazed at their beautiful home, and their yard was just beautiful, and they had a pomegranate tree and uh, grapes and flowers and a lawn, and <laughs> it was just beautiful to me. I shared a room with my foster sister, Debbie. I think we vacuumed every day or every other day, and it always seemed like, I don't understand why we have to vacuum there's no dirt on the floor. <laughs> and I remember being aware of all the things that they did that we didn't do. And all the things that they did that I liked. How they said family prayer together before they went to bed. And everybody got a hug and kissed each other goodnight. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do when I have a family. He seemed to not have a very high esteem. Um, in fact, just to put it kind of bluntly, Dory didn't seem to even like his culture, his, to be an Indian. Um, when we'd have the Order of the Arrow come and do the dances, the Indian dances and things like that, he would go in the other room. He didn't even want to be around it. Or we'd see other Indians and he would turn and go the other way. I think when I was growing up, I... I I didn't want to be um, Navajo. I wasn't, you know. I would they would say, you know, are you Indian? I say no, and I would just deny it because I didn't want to get into the situation where I had to explain myself. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't want to. I didn't want to go there. I just wanted to be normal. I just wanted them. My friends just say that he's just Dory. You know, he's just that's who he is. He's not, you know, white. He's not black. He's not Indian. He's just my friend, and that's all I wanted to be. 
It takes a real thick skin in order to be a person of color and then also to have to live in two worlds. At five years old, I was responsible for taking the horses to the water. And I rode those horses bareback. That was my job. So I had a sense of, uh, a great sense of responsibility for, for the things I do. And then I had to go to placement. And I went to a place where everything that I, that I had was not acknowledged, was taken for granted, and nothing of value that I had and did was, was worth anything to them. There was also constant conflict with the beliefs, just the whole concept of the church, learning to understand that. I guess each student had different experiences, but my experience was that before we left every year to come home, they would tell us, make sure you go to church, don't go to any ceremonies like squaw dances, don't have any ceremonies. But my family always had a beauty way ceremony for each of us. It was to bless our minds and to make us strong so that we wouldn't have any problems with learning. When we used to go back, they would ask us, did you have any ceremonies? And I would have to say no. So I felt like I was violating both. I wasn't being true to my culture and I wasn't being honest with the other culture. What is culture? And when is it good and when is it bad? And what's sacred about it? My grandmother came from Denmark. She gave up her complete culture to come to America and be a member of the church. Is that wrong? Is that bad? Which culture did these children give up? Did they give up their original culture where they had the gospel of Jesus Christ in their life? Or did they give up another culture that they came to when they left the gospel of Jesus Christ. I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And all the teachings that it has, I firmly believe. I always felt at the beginning that, that I was not as good as white people. But as I grew up and from the things I learned from the placement and also from the things I learned from church, I finally got to the point where I didn't feel that way anymore. And I see all those positive things with my children. They can function in an Anglo world as well as the native world. And they're not afraid of either one. My name is Floyd Nelson. The church uh, has been a tremendous blessing for me. I've uh, come to understand who I am as a Native American through the Book of Mormon. Yes, we have a cursed skin to to identify who we are, but I don't look at it as a curse. I look at it as a blessing. The Book of Mormon teaches us that the Native Americans will rise, rise up in power again. They will become a people who will finally figure out who their God is. Sometimes, even now, sometimes I kind of slip back into that, the guilt that that I used to feel, even though I don't go to church anymore. Sometimes I have flashbacks to to how it used to feel when, when I go through ceremony. And, of course, it's always a relief to know that I'm an adult and I don't have to carry that in at all. 
we so much wanted Dory to keep his culture strong. We felt like that was very important. We never wanted to take any of that from him. In fact, when he started dating, we said, date Indian girls. You need to keep your lines pure and clean and, you know, keep that Navajo um, line pure, you know. But he didn't do that. <laughs> he, he married a white girl, so, you know. And they have beautiful children who just, you know, love him to death. But we really wanted, you know, tried to encourage him to, to date Indian girls. To this day, August is the month I dread the most because that was the month that I always left to go on placement. I wake up feeling empty that something supposed to have been there but wasn't there was denied me or taken away. It's just a feeling of something missing that I bonded with more with people that weren't of my family, and they're not in my life anymore. And they, they, they haven't been in my life for, for many years. And one of the secret desires that's always been in my heart is that I would see my foster brothers or my foster sisters there at the door of my parents' place. Because... I thought they only knew maybe less than half of who I really was. But it hasn't happened to this day. Saints and Indians was produced by Kate Davidson for the Worlds of Different series from Homeland Productions in 2005. They're at homelands.org. The editor was Deb George. We're in Utah this hour. You are hearing voices and ukuleles. The lake sure smells putrid today. The wind is just right. It smells dead. If there was such a thing as the opposite of a tropical island paradise, the Great Salt Lake would be it. There are places to the west out on the salt flats where insects can't even live. You drive across sections of highway in the summer and you won't get so much as a gnat on your headlights. A few years ago, I drove past the lake out toward the emptiness and then turned left to go to a place called Yosepa. I was told Yosepa was a Hawaiian name and that up in the hills there were petroglyphs of jellyfish and sea turtles carved into the rocks, scenes of sharks and sea lions and palm trees. My directions were a little unclear. Take the road toward the top secret army base, go past Muskrat Spring until you get near Salt Mountain, pull off at a small ranch house. It was windy and dusty. I didn't see anyone around, so I walked up to the old cemetery. Overlooking it was a large monolith with a bust of what appeared to be a Hawaiian chief. There was a plaque with these words written in Hawaiian. The life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. The motto of the kingdom of Hawaii. A few years later, and I'm standing under the Hawaiian chief statue again, there's this big righteous luau going on. pig is roasting in a pit, people are dancing and singing, but the land is just as barren as it always is, all dry grass and sagebrush. There are about 500 Hawaiians here today, not exactly what you'd expect in a desert known as Skull Valley. This seems strange to have Hawaiians in the, in the middle of the desert. It's kind of strange. I, I, we, th- we think it's kind of off the wall. Everyone's here to celebrate the legacy of Yosepa, a colony of mostly Hawaiians that, incredible as it may seem, lived in this desert about 100 years ago. We're in Yosepa, Skull Valley, Utah. The temperature is about... <laughs> and we're expecting rain soon, probably. Oh, locusts. And it's exactly what the, the Polynesians endured here in, the, in their experiment here in the desert. In 1889, Joseph F. Smith, the nephew of Mormon church founder Joseph Smith and a missionary in Hawaii, helped convince about 50 Hawaiians to pack up and leave Paradise and move here, out in Utah's West Desert. They even named their town after him. Yosepa is Hawaiian for Joseph. 
Smith told them that according to Mormon scripture, they were descendants of a lost tribe of Israel and that they were part of a great gathering of the tribes here in Zion. They would go forth and make the desert bloom. You gotta hand it to them. The colony grew to about 200 and they held on for more than 25 years. Enough time to leave 44 graves in the cemetery. Even several cases of leprosy didn't turn them back. Eventually, it was the Mormon church that thought better of things and adjourned the colony. But I'll bet the Hawaiians would have stuck it out. Polynesians still come here. Every year, there's this big celebration to marvel at what the Yosepans accomplished. Saichi Kawahara is here performing some old songs composed by a group of the settlers who called themselves the Yosepa Troubadours. Well, the song that was composed here, and uh, inside of it is wrapped up the whole experience, Polynesian experience here in Skull Valley. Well, it was a, a lifestyle of hardship. I mean, this is a very severe land here. Um, but always keeping, always retaining their ties to the culture, to the people back home, to their food, to their, to their dances and their songs. Looking out there now, it's hard to imagine Hawaiians in this place or that a place like Hawaii even exists. But you can try. At the top of the hill overlooking the Yosepa Cemetery, if you squint, off to the north you can see a vast patch of blue water in the distance. It's the Great Salt Lake. The life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. Sometimes you take what you can get. And if the wind is blowing away from you, maybe, just maybe. That Utah Luau was produced by Jeff Rice. Coming up, Scott Carrier pounds nails and finds polygamous. That's in a minute when we continue with the Mormon Fringe on Hearing Voices. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. Hearing Voices producer Scott Carrier lives in Salt Lake City. He produced this next story for This American Life in 1996. At a particularly low point in my career as a responsible husband and father, I worked as a carpenter's assistant for my younger brother, a contractor specializing in home renovation. We built additions, garages, finished basements, tore out bathrooms, installed new ones, and so on. He paid me $10 an hour, which I considered to be generous. At that time, good carpenters, men who could build an entire house from start to finish by themselves, single-handed, were making twelve fifty an hour, and I was only an assistant, a gopher, the guy who digs and carries and cleans up. It was hard work, but then all work is hard, and it was good for me to work out my tension on wood and concrete and dirt instead of on my family. What I didn't like about the job was that it made me hateful, I resented working on another man's house, a man with enough money to pay for a $40,000 bathroom, a man who decides he wants a bigger garage for his new motorcycle, a man who doesn't want to dig up his own sewer pipe. The work forced me to admit that I was a slave, that somewhere in life I'd made a big mistake. I mention this here because it was through this experience that I first realized that Christianity, as it's commonly practiced, is more concerned with revenge and ultimate justice than it is about compassion and love of your fellow man. Consider the following scenario. I am shingling a garage roof with a lead carpenter named Dave. It's Dave's first day on the job, and we're both up there pounding shingles and talking about Star Trek. Dave is a big Star Trek fan. He's seen all of the old and new shows and even has floor plans of the Enterprise, which he's committed to memory. 
Dave tells me about the insidious Borg, a race of cyborgs with the social conscience of ants. Dave knows why the Klingons are now part of the Federation, and Dave has decided just how he would spend his time on the holodeck, a room on the Enterprise where crew members go to live out their fantasies in holographic reality. It's a harmless conversation that seems to diminish the tedium of the work. But then, after a brief lull, Dave stops pounding shingles and asks me in a very serious tone, Scott, have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? Turns out Dave is a fundamentalist Christian with a strong desire to proselytize. That evening after work, I asked my brother if maybe he doesn't need a foundation dug somewhere or some fiberglass insulation stapled into place, anything other than work with Dave. He looks at the ground and kicks the dirt, tells me he promised the owner that the roof would be done last week. After Dave, there's Steve, who tells me about how in Idaho they're implanting silicon chips in babies' ankles that will forever identify them as part of Satan's army. After Steve, there's another Dave, who, when he's alone, practices out loud, shouting, his sermons exposing the evils of the Trilateralist Commission. And after that Dave, there's John, who my brother hires as a grunt to help me out. John has just arrived from Boston, where he drove a cab for 20 years, up until the Kennedys ran him out of town. He says Ted Kennedy was out to get him. He says Ted Kennedy has ruined his life. And he tells me the amazing story of how, while hitchhiking west through Kansas, he became so depressed he decided to throw himself in front of a semi-truck, barreling down I-70. But then, suddenly from out of nowhere, he saw Jesus Christ standing 40 feet tall on the side of the road. Jesus spoke to him. He said, John... These trucks are my roller skates. You know, when you see a thing happen once, it's an accident. When you see it happen twice, it's a coincidence. And when you see it happen three or more times, it's a science. And sciences demand theories. My first theory was that there might be some sort of connection between Jesus and these men because they were all carpenters. And so I would ask my workmates questions like, Was Jesus a framer or a finish man? I mean, it makes a difference, don't you think? But these men were not interested in philosophy, and they were not even interested, it turned out, in stories about Jesus or his teachings of compassion. Far from it. They were all into the book of Revelations. They were all religious for reasons of revenge. All had had hard lives filled with injustices and inequities. All had resigned themselves to a life over which they'd lost control. Their one hope was that when they die, when everyone dies, everyone will get what they deserve. The righteous will be happy forever while the bastards, the assholes, the wicked and corrupt, the filth, will burn in hell. So now I've changed my theory. I've decided that religion is something people use not only because we want to connect with a sense of our spiritual existence, we also use it to bring a sense of justice to our social existence. Just wait until Jesus comes back. Just wait until the apocalypse. It's not a new theory. I'm sure someone else has come up with the same idea before and no doubt explained it in much better terms. All I'm offering, really, is more evidence. And the evidence at hand now, the story I want to tell now, years after my shift as a carpenter, is a story about a group of radical Mormon polygamists who live in central Utah, in and around a little town called Manti. I call them radical because they've all been excommunicated by the church authorities, not for practicing polygamy, not because they were sinners, they were excommunicated because they said, over and over again, that the church authorities were working for Satan. I'll begin the story by introducing Jim Harmston, a middle-aged man of common qualities, a man who used to sell real estate up in Davis County. He was a Mormon, a good Mormon, a member of the High Council. He had a house on the hill and a new Continental every six months. But then, in 1990, he started to believe that the church had become wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and he started praying in the true order and seeing angels and receiving divine messengers from across the veil, who told him first that he should quit his job and move with his family to Manti, which he did, next to become a polygamist, which he did, and then to become the prophet and president of his own new church, the true and living church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Last Days, which he also did. He did, in effect, have very nearly the same experience that Joseph Smith had 160 years before. I had an experience where uh, where four dispensation heads came across the veil and laid their hands on my head. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Moses, restoring again the apostleship 
and uh, this happened on a Sunday, and uh, they were magnificent uh, resurrected beings, clothed in uh, in white garment, white clothing to their robes, uh, hung to their ankles. Uh, they uh, had white hair and beards. They were magnificent, and I was overwhelmed with the Holy Ghost. And uh, it's been interesting to observe people give up their careers and their professions, their their businesses, and uh, begin to gather here in Manti. On Sunday afternoon, Harmston's church has a testimonial meeting, 150 men, women, and children on folding chairs in a newly constructed meeting hall. Testimony meeting is a Mormon tradition where members stand and bear their testimony in the truth and validity of the church and its doctrines. But many of the people here have recently been excommunicated, and so their testimony is that the Mormon church has become corrupt. Indeed, that this congregation now is the only true and living church on the planet. I've been searching for for a witness of this work and of this church and and just tonight I got my witness and it's burning within my soul of how important this work is and how true it is I know it is and it's hard to believe that just a year ago, I was in high school. I was in plays. I was uh, a typical teenager. And now I'm in a plural marriage and struggling. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> but... I know, without a shadow of a doubt, that this is the Lord's work. That I have finally found it. And I love you guys, and I'm thankful for your prayers and for all that you have to offer me. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Members of Harmson's church practice the principle of plural marriage because they believe polygamy was one of the fundamental teachings of Joseph Smith. This is why polygamists often refer to themselves as fundamentalists. They also believe in practicing the law of consecration, wherein all goods and services are held in common, a communism, and that there will be a gathering of God's chosen people into a nation, a Zion nation. This gathering is to be in a safe spot, an area protected during the millennium and the Armageddon. It's all there in the book of Revelations, and it's all happening now. Hundreds, some say thousands, of fundamentalists from around the West have moved to Manti over the past three years, all believing that this is the place for the gathering. Steve McKinley has lived in Manti for 15 years. This is a very special place. There have been very sacred things happen here. And uh, I moved here to Manti 15 years ago because the Lord told us to live, to move here. And I've, I've seen a lot of people come and go from this valley for spiritual reasons that are totally different. They're not even, they don't even know who Jim Harmston is, you know, and they come and they go. Steve McKinley and Jim Harmston used to be friends, but now they're more like enemies. They met when Harmston moved to Manti in 1990, and so McKinley has seen the development of Harmston's church from its beginning. It began as nothing more than a group of men from the Manti area who came together once a week and sat in a circle in an upstairs bedroom. There were 17 men who came together because they were concerned about things that were being taught and accepted by people as doctrine. 
and we were concerned, and we came together, and we prayed, and we asked, Heavenly Father, will you teach us? Will you tell us what is your doctrine, what and what is not? And will you protect us as individuals against things that we might do that would destroy ourselves? The other thing, if Randy needs a lump of coal to keep his family warm, and Steve's got two, then Steve says, Randy, here, have one of my lumps of coal, you know, and let's take care of each other. Let's help each other because we love each other and we're concerned, okay? So there were two reasons that we came together, to pray together and to help each other with our temporal needs. They also did a lot of talking about the evils of the new world order, perhaps the need to stockpile weapons, the necessity of taking the kids out of the public schools, various conspiracies, secret combinations, and so on. The men held the meetings in each other's homes, and on special occasions they'd set up a teepee on top of a mountain. In the teepee, they'd sit in a circle and bear their testimony and pray in the true order, which is a secret Mormon ritual that's supposed to be performed only in a temple. Mormons believe that by praying in the true order, the veil that separates heaven and earth can be parted, enabling angels and messengers of the Lord to cross over into this temporal plane, which is exactly what the men say started to happen in the teepee. They say their prayers called down lightning and thunderstorms from heaven. They say that this was where God first told the group to organize themselves along Iroquois guidelines, wherein all decisions were to be made by unanimous revelation, not just unanimous consent, unanimous revelation, where everyone would pray and have a vision, the same vision at the same time. Then they all received the vision that they should give each other titles like war chief and peace chief and medicine chief and historian, so that every man would be a chief with certain responsibilities, but that no man would be the ultimate chief with control over all the others. I, I recall the testimony meeting, and Jim Harmston stood up and he said, If any man here were to stand and declare himself a leader amongst these men, there would be ten men who would stand up and shoot him in the kneecaps, because none of us independently are the leader. We are a group of individuals who have come together, and nobody has authority over anybody else. That's how it started. That's how God called us together. The men started calling themselves the High Council, and then realized by unanimous revelation that they were actually new apostles of the Lord, and that they should begin an entirely new church, the true and living church of Jesus Christ of saints of the last days, and that they should start confirming each other as members. And so I asked Jim if he would confirm me. And as I sat in the chair, facing the wall, not the window, but the wall in Bart's living room. Facing east. Yeah, facing east. Uh, and I, I had my head bowed and my eyes were closed and I opened my eyes and was wondering why he was pausing, and then I closed my eyes again, and I saw three men walk through the wall. It was Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball who came through the veil, and they placed their hands upon my head and revealed many things concerning my life and my foreordination to certain things upon this earth that I should do. And and I could see the vision as he spoke. I could see it. And Jim described what he saw, what we both saw in vision. And Jim was so overwhelmed that he closed the vision because he was so overwhelmed he could not continue the vision. Jim ended it. But it continued for me. And I saw many things that Jim did not speak. The first major conflict within the new church came early on. One of the high council apostles, Randy Dalton, the historian, came to a meeting and presented a teaching on polygamy he called Hearts and Flowers. I have a firm testimony that we are to become perfect. The Lord has commanded us, Be ye therefore perfect, even as I and my Father in heaven okay, are perfect. Well, what does that mean? In the Greek and in the Hebrew, the word that is used that we translate as perfect really means to be whole or complete. 
I do not believe that it is possible for us to become whole or complete through intimate relationship with only one other person. Okay? Now, the fact of the matter is that men just do not form emotionally intimate relationships with other men. It just, <laughs> it's really kind of foreign to our being. And yet, look at women. They have these incredibly emotionally intimate relationships, you know. I mean, they know everything about each other. They, they feel, they, the empathy is incredible. They feel what the other is feeling. And, and there is, in fact, uh, one of the, the problems that is fundamental to most marriages is that a woman craves a kind of nurturing in her relationship, in her marriage, that men are rarely capacitated to give. We're just not the nurturing types. And yet a woman needs that. And as men, we just tend not to be able to give it. And yet a sister-wife can give so much of that emotional support that, you know, as men, we're just not very very good at doing. And, uh, and, it, and it can work very beautifully if you can get over issues like jealousy and, you know, things like that that get in the way. Well, so I was talking about these kinds of things. We thought he was talking about homosexuality, and we were going to go out there and rip his head off. Because, you know... Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> but we were upset because, you know, we didn't understand. We thought, well, is he talking about homosexuality? If he is, we're going to set this boy straight. We're going to explain some things to him, you know? And, and Randy says, no, wait a minute, guys. <laughs> that isn't what I said. <laughs> you see? Let me tell you. <laughs> and so we talked about it for a long time. And that's not what Randy was talking about. But we misunderstood it, and so did a lot of others. A lot of others thought that's what he was talking about, and that was not it. It was a teaching that grew into an argument, that grew into a conflict, that couldn't be resolved. The question wasn't whether polygamy was okay. Everyone agreed that it was. The question was about sex, whether a polygamous man could have more than one of his wives in bed at a time. For two weeks, the group met and prayed in the true order. Some said it was an abomination. Others weren't so sure. I told you earlier that, that many of us experimented with different things. You know, the true order of prayer. We experimented with a lot of things. I think that Joseph Smith was the greatest example of an experimenter. He experimented with a lot of things. He had seer stones and peep stones and witching rods, you know, to witch wells and water and all kinds of things. He experimented. He tested. Uh, there were many of us who tried and tested this so-called uh, understanding of our sexuality with our wives. Okay, Many of us on both sides. Members of Jim's church. Paul members Jim's of church. the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Members of the First Presidency of Jim's church who participated and experimented with having sex with more than one wife in the bed at a time. They experimented with it. And they're, they're okay. They're members of Jim's church. Three weeks after Randy Dalton gave the Hearts and Flowers teaching, there was still considerable tension within the council. And at the next meeting, it split apart. Instead of the council talking it out and coming to unanimous revelation, Jim Harmston stood up and said he'd received revelation for everyone that three in a bed was an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. And while he was at it, he said he also received revelation that he alone was now in charge of the church. He stands and he says, I have received revelation for these people. I have received revelation for this council. Thus saith the Lord, and I, I want to emphasize that. He said, Thus saith the Lord. Then Harmston and four other men stood and walked out of the meeting, leaving the others as outcasts, ostracized from the true and living church, just as they had been ostracized from the Mormon church before. At that moment, Jim Harmston placed himself in a position above the others. At that moment, Jim Harmston took control of the church. The sex thing was a smokescreen. It was a smokescreen to cover up Jim's ambition to take over the council and the nation and everything else. And what more better tool could he use than something that was disgusting to most people? 
you know? You know, if if he could say, well, these guys are perverts, man. They're they're having orgies. They're, you know, they got everybody in bed and they're just they're sex-crazed people, you know? Well, if anybody believes that plural marriage is about sex, they got another thing coming, yeah. you know? It has nothing to do with sex. It's about a relationship between people. Okay? Oh, God. And God, it has nothing to do, very little to do with sex. Believe me, I know. But you know, Nietzsche made a very interesting comment. He said, battle not with monsters, lest you become a monster. And when you gaze into the abyss, the abyss is within you. And I think that that's what happened, is that Jim Harmston has spent so much time fighting against the LDS Church, that he's become a general authority. It, it, it may well be that every abuse he has accused the LDS Church of may yet be found in his own circle. This split in the true and living church happened three years ago, and since then Harmston has baptized hundreds of new members, whereas McKinley and Dalton, the others who were ostracized, have pretty much just kept meeting with each other, four or five families getting together sometimes on Sunday afternoons. It was at one of these Sunday meetings that I interviewed McKinley and Dalton, and the scene in the house was very different from what it was like at the Harmstons. McKinley and Dalton the others joked around and laughed a lot. Their wives talked loudly in the kitchen, and all ages of children were running around inside and out. Occasionally one of the wives would come into the living room where we were talking, and it was difficult to tell which man was her husband. They all got along so well. But at Harmston's house, his two wives were upset and not talking to each other. The first wife told me she'd gone after Jim that morning with a frying pan. The second wife hid in the back room. And there were no kids. Everything was quiet and serious. It was like going from interviewing a group of hippies to interviewing Richard Nixon. Harmston sat at his desk in his study, looking out the window at the Manti Temple just a couple of blocks away, a temple built by the Mormon church over 80 years ago a temple he still considers to be sacred and holy, but it's a temple he's no longer allowed to enter. He was kicked out of the Mormon church. He kicked out his friends from his own church. His closest allies now are the angels and spirits who promise him that he alone holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Well, I'm either completely nuts or right on target, one or the other, and uh, there isn't anything in between, you know, and they have to judge for themselves. I said at the beginning of the story that Christianity is often more concerned with revenge than compassion, and it's not for nothing that Harmston and his followers call themselves the saints of the last days. For them, the time of the millennium, as foretold in the book of Revelations, is at hand. Soon the seventh seal will be opened, and the beast will rise up from out of the sea, and the seven vials of God's wrath shall be poured out upon the earth. Soon all of the unbelieving, the abominable, the whoremongers and idolaters and liars of all kinds will be thrown into the burning lake of fire, and God Almighty will destroy the great whore of Babylon. Soon only those sealed with the name of the Lord will be saved. If you ask Jim Harmston what will become of McKinley and Dalton and the others who are ostracized, he won't say that they're doomed to burn with all the other sinners. He won't say that they, perhaps, will suffer even more because they've rejected the spiritual guidance of the Lord. He'll only say that their ultimate destiny is up to God himself. And then he'll go on to say that during the millennium, the saints of the last days will become the leaders of a new world government and that the little town of Manti, Utah, will become the center of the universe. It's only a hundred miles south of where I live, but I don't think I'm going to make it.
Scott Carrier's story was produced for This American Life in 1996. I'm Barrett Golding, and there's links to everything you heard this hour at HearingVoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com.